Holy Spirit, you are welcome here, uh, not just as we sing our heart of praise, but as we listen to your word too, and as we go from this place and want to live more like Jesus, we just ask that everything that happens this morning would be bathed with your presence and your power. Father, thank you that we can approach you because of Jesus, and you've given us your spirit, and we can come in faith knowing that the world we live in is messed up and broken as it is, and, and the people we are, as frail and weak and sinful as we are, you are a good God and an all-powerful God who can take that and work with it, and so we offer ourselves to you for that purpose this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I forgot to mention this in the first service, but um, as a church, we're practicing church growth in, uh, in an organic way. Um, a lot of babies are being born into the family, and uh, that's wonderful. There's, you look around, there's still babies to be born. Uh, this week, back to back, in fact, they were in the hospital at the same time, the Brovers, Derek is our young adult director, and the Lundquists, Kyle is our high school director, they were both in, well, it was the ladies that did all the work, but the guys were there with them uh, in the hospital. I've seen both babies and both families, wonderful, so praise God. Um, and for those of you that are, are on the way, keep going. It, it, it'll be good. Um, it, you know, it was funny. Between services, I had a friend come up to me, and uh, he said, hey, I went to the Who concert this week. Don't know if you knew that. It's like, wow, cool. said, yeah, it was this week. I should have invited you. You know, it's always good after the fact when somebody says, I should have invited you. It's like, well, yeah, you should have, but Okay. And then he said, I actually had an extra ticket. It's like, oh, oh. One time when we were at, um, away at college, uh, before we were married, Davette and I went to the same college, she got a care package from her parents. It's like, care package, how cool is that? You open it, there's all this promise. And since we're engaged, I figure I get to kind of mooch off the care package. And there is a candy bar wrapper in there. Not, not the candy bar, just the wrapper. And her dad had a note saying, mmm, it was good. <laughs> There are some things that just aren't right. Um, so, some things will take a day that was looking like it was going to be a good day and turn it into a bad day, right? We've all had those bad day experiences. Um, speaking of the who, that's actually how it came about that I had this conversation between services. I, I was listening to the radio this week, and a uh, radio station had a throwback American Top 40 playing all of a 1978 show with all of the songs that have passed, many of them gladly, from the scene, and a few that have continued. And on the Top 40, The Who had a song, and Casey Kasem introduced the song uh, with a story about Keith Moon, who was their drummer. And uh, they were in the middle of, uh, they were kind of at the peak of their popularity, and they had a huge hit out that was climbing the charts, and, um, you know, it was intense. You know, partying like a rock star takes a toll on you. And uh, so they decided they were going to put a little space in the middle of their concert tour, and Keith Moon said, I'm going to go spend some time by myself. And so he flew to Germany for a little R&R &R by himself. And one day he was doing R&R, &R, and suddenly it occurred to him, we have a concert in London tonight, and I'm in Germany. Ah! So he threw a bunch of things into a bag, went down to the airport as quickly as he could, and he found out that the last commercial flight that would get him there in time had just left. Now, what do you do? Well, if you're a rock star, you go running around the airport saying, Who can I, I want to hire a jet, I want to hire a jet, and you find whatever's available to charter, and he found only one jet available to charter, a 707, 
which is, uh, it'll be a delayed response for much of the audience because you're too young for that, but think 737, only really, really old. This is a giant passenger jet. And so he uh, chartered a 707. He was the only passenger. There's like 200 seats, and he's the only guy on the plane because he's got to get to London in time for the concert. He has just enough time to send a message to Pete Townsend, the guitarist, to say, Pete, pick me up at Heathrow. I'll be coming in at such and such a time. Pete's rather surprised when he sees the 707 taxi up, and only Keith Moon gets out <laughs> and walks over to him rather quickly and says, okay, let's go. And he's like, Pete, Keith, what's, what's going on here? What's this? He said, well, you know, I... I I, I couldn't get a regular flight. It was too late, and I had to, so I chartered this. And he said, what are you in such a hurry for? He said, well, we got to get to the concert. And Pete looked at him and said, what concert? The one we have tonight here. He said, Keith, don't you remember? We canceled that weeks ago. <laughs> oh, that's right. <laughs> Even a rock star can have a bad day. It's like, ah. Oh. That was crazy. I left Germany and spent all that money to fly on this. And now Casey Kasem is going to be telling everyone. And 40 years later, some dude's going to be talking about it in a church somewhere I've never heard of. And I'm humiliated for the rest of history. Sometimes uh, we have hard things. I was talking to somebody actually not long ago who was wrestling with something. And they said, you know, in six months, this is going to be really funny. You ever ever had that kind of experience? It's like, well, in six months, it's going to be really funny, but it's not now. It's not now. A lot of things that we go through that there's nothing funny about them right now. It's nice when the hard day has a punchline, but often the hard day just has pain. When we live in a world that has cancer diagnoses and marriages that collapse, And people who are still struggling with trauma from decades ago that is literally crippling them. And a lot of broken dreams and battered hearts. That's that's the world we live in. And there's there's some cool, fun, even punchline funny things, but there's actually a lot more hardship. Even in the most serene of lives, we find out that the good days have a shelf life. And there's always a bad day lining up behind it. And we can put on our bumper sticker all we want to, no bad days, it ain't going to work. Because that's the world we live in, where bad days are coming, where hard things happen. It's just part of life. And one of the things that I have uh, observed and experienced over and over again is that when things are tough, really tough, it's easy for us to ask a question, where's God? Where's God in this? Where's God in my pain? Where's God in my struggle? I've followed him all these years, and now it's getting really hard. Where's God? I was expecting this, and now this is happening. Where's God? And I want to answer that question this morning through a series on the temple of all things, because actually the temple is the answer to that question for our day and age, when we understand it rightly. And um, we're going to start by getting a little background so that we understand what temple's all about. And then over the next number of weeks, we've got six weeks for this series, then we're into the holidays. After the first of the year, we're going to start on an extended series through the book of John. So there's your roadmap for things coming. Right now, we're going to talk about the temple, which answers the question, where is God in all of this? Now, when we ask that question, 
Sometimes it's a legitimate question and needs then an answer. And I, I, wanna, I wanna give a, a disclaimer up front, a, a realism disclaimer. There are a lot of spiritual snake oil salesman kind of people who will offer answers to that question that are really not real. Slap this verse on your life, you'll be good. It's like, that's not the way it works. Life's a lot more complex than that. And this morning, if you're looking for a simple answer that's gonna make the sky suddenly sunny in your life, well, don't. Because that's not the scriptural answer. But the temple is the answer to that question, and it is a significant answer, and it is a sufficient answer if we understand how it's supposed to work. Sometimes we ask the question, where is God in all of this? And that's not actually a question at all. It's an accusation. Because we're angry. And we're hurting and we're frustrated. And when that's the case, it's important that we would, in fact, bring that to God because he already knows that. We need to work through that. But we also need to understand that our perspective is not actually right. And so whatever the solution looks like going forward, somehow we have to, by God's grace and probably a lot of battle on our part, move off of that perspective onto what is actually correct. And usually when we're saying, where's God and all that is an accusation, what we're saying is it's not supposed to be this way. I did this, and I did this, and I did this, and I did this, and God wasn't supposed to let this happen. And that narrative that's going in our mind may or may not have any resemblance to the truth. But the final conclusion actually is true, and God says a hearty amen to it, and that's where the temple comes back in. It is not supposed to be that way. The world we live in is not supposed to be the way it is, and the temple is actually God's answer for us in our day. In order to understand how this works and set up the next number of sermons, I'd like you to turn to the last page in your Bible, Revelation 21. Now, if you get there and it says Revelation 22, just turn one page to the left and you'll be there. So it's either the last page or the second last page in your Bible. And I want to read you some verses. And there's a lot here, and we're not going to try to unpack all that Revelation is saying. I just want to, I want to capture the picture, because that's an important picture. So listen broadly, and then I'll um, kind of draw out some things for us. Verse, 21, uh, verse 1 of chapter 21, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be there with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. A whole lot of detail is given. Pick up the flow in verse 22, please. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. 
and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Okay, just keep that picture in your mind, and now turn to the very first page in your Bible. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 2, and just like with that one, if you're not there, turn one page to the right, and you'll be there. Page 1 or page 2. And let me read you some verses. We're going to jump around a little here. This is the story of creation, and just a quick summary to bring us all onto the same page. Genesis 1 is the description, the broad strokes of how God created everything. Genesis 2 then backs up and says, essentially, let me tell you more about how the creation of humans came about. It seems like two different stories, and they're just two different takes on the same story. Um, and so chapter 2 is kind of that expansion section. And um, we're going to just pick and choose a few verses because I want to I draw our attention to something out of Revelation and Genesis together. In verse 7 of chapter 2, it says, The Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. God spoke the universe into existence in chapter one. Now in chapter two, it slows down and says, let me give you a picture of creating humans. And it pictures essentially God getting on hands and knees and playing in the mud and breathing his own life into Adam. It's very personal. It's very intimate. Um, skip down to verse, um, what verse am I looking for? Verse, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. See this very personal, interactive dynamic. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh... He's doing surgery here. And the rib that he took uh, from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Okay? So get that picture there. Now, let's go back and read verse 8. Build out another piece of our picture. Chapter 2, verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. There he put the man whom he had formed out of the ground... And the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight, good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. Skip over to chapter 3, verse 8, please. The wheels have come off the cart. We'll get get to that in a minute. But there's a little picture here that's important for us to, to grab hold of. Verse 8, it says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And what appears to have happened is as a, a habitual thing, God would meet with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the day and walk 
side by side talking about the day and what's going on and what's next. Okay? One more little section for our picture before we start to draw some parallels here. Look at verse 15 of chapter 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Those two words are important, work it and keep it. He puts, actually Adam and Eve, in the garden with a task to do. The world at this point is the whole of the earth within which there is a land called Eden, which basically means delight. Within Eden, there is a cultivated and protected garden that God gives to them where he's going to meet with them, and he says, you need to cultivate and protect this place. Okay, now back to chapter one, our last bit of data, at least for the moment. Verse 26, this is backing up to the sweeping description of creation, and it says, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the ground. So God says, and and this is really clear, we're not going to develop this out a lot because that's a whole other study, but basically God creates them to rule on his behalf in partnership with him. I'm the king, you guys are kings and queens junior grade. Right? We're going to do this project together. You're going to represent me. And for that to work, I need there to be a couple of things in the mix here. One, you're in my image. And I want that to spread. So I want you to go and fill up the earth. That's the first he commands. Go fill up the earth. Go populate the earth with little images of me. Right? Which as a church, we're doing the best we can with that right now. And then two, I want you to take this world and make it even better subdue it, rule it, right? He has set a pattern for them. And if you look at Genesis 1, you can do this later today and and just retrack with it, but it's set up as a pattern. On day one, God creates light and dark, day and night. On day two, he creates water and sky, ocean and sky. On day three, dry land. Day four then connects with day one. The light and dark are filled up with the sun, the moon, and the stars, Day five connects with day two. The sky and the waters are filled with birds and fish. Day six then connects with day three. The land is filled with animals and ultimately people. And then God rests because his work is done. He's started something and he's now created his crowning work humans to represent him and to take it and develop it further. And so he's actually laid down a paradigm for them. When he says, go and fill up the earth and go and subdue and rule over the earth and shape it, he's already shown them. Look, I took, I made dark and light, and then I filled it up. I made water and sky, and then I filled it up. I made land, and then I filled it up. Now you go take what I've given you, because you're in, in the garden, this protected space in Eden, this delightful place on the earth that is good but wild, and it needs you to shape it. 
That's what I intend. That plan of God has always been the plan of God, and it has never changed. Now, here's why we read Revelation and all those verses in Genesis. Here's what I want you to notice in the images that we read. In both Revelation and in Genesis, at the end of time and the beginning of time, God is with his people, and it is an intimate, interactive connection. That's the center of everything. Secondly, people bring good stuff to the equation, right? It doesn't expand on it in the book of Revelation, and there's an argument over exactly what does it mean, but somehow the nations are bringing glory into this new creation of God. Adam and Eve were created for the express purpose of expanding the good work God was doing in the world. It's like people are supposed to be bringing good and evil's banished. Evil's supposed to be outside. That's what it pictures in Revelation. That's what's commanded and expected in Genesis. So it's actually rather um, disturbing in more than one reason to find the snake in the garden. Shouldn't, Adam should have protected it and he didn't. Okay. There's garden imagery really strong. We start in a garden, end in a city, but the city is designed like the garden. It's designed to evoke that. There are, there's lots of fruit, there's trees, there's the river, all of these things that are parallel between the two stories that say the original paradise will be strongly echoed in my ultimate purpose. Eden will return in a form in the end because that's always been my plan. It's always been my purpose. And in both of these stories, there's no temple. That's really important if we're gonna understand what the temple is and what it does and why it matters for us right now. We have to see that it's not in the garden and it's not in new creation. And in new creation, we're told, God's the temple, right? Because the reality is temple in our most common understanding is a place, like a physical space. And there's a measure to which that's true, but the dynamic, the purpose it exists for is bigger than that. And in fact, if we get hung up on place, space, building, architecture, we've missed the point. Because the point is God with his people. And that's why the temple's so important between the garden and the end. It's the bridge between Eden and the end. It is the connection point between heaven and earth. It is the link between divine and human in this age. Because something terrible happened in Genesis 3. Temple is a pointer to the fact that there's Genesis 3 through 50, or Genesis 4 through 50, plus all of the rest of the Bible up until the book of Revelation. We shouldn't have a story if we just read it the way we would expect. And Temple is the shocking fact that says we actually have a story. Let me show you what I mean. Look at the end of Genesis 3, please. End of Genesis 3, 
after Adam and Eve have sinned, a holy God cannot tolerate that. I mean, we so downplay this because we don't understand it. God has created the universe that he is sovereign over, and he said, now you get to join me in ruling. And Adam and Eve say, we like ruling, we just don't like the join part. That's cosmic treason. That's essentially saying, God, I wish you were dead. I'm taking what you've given me, and it's mine. I'm going to define what's right and wrong, and I'm going to define how to use it, and it's going to go the direction I choose, and I don't trust you. I'm going to go on my own. When they do that, the wheels come off the cart, right? They're supposed to fill the earth with little pictures of God, the image of God in each successive person. Well, the image of God continues, but it's highly distorted. So instead of filling it with beautiful little pictures of God, they fill it with Cain and Abel and murder, right? They're supposed to take this world and exercise their God-given authority and shape it and make it better and better, and they give that authority away. We're told in the New Testament that that now lies in Satan's control, and they have no hope of actually controlling much of anything. And at the center of that is supposed to be this ongoing, interactive, intimate relationship with God. I created a space where you and I could be together regularly because this is a partnership. They say, thanks, we don't need a partner. And God says, then you don't get the space. And that connection is broken. And here's how the story in Genesis 3 ends. Therefore, verse 23, therefore the Lord God sent him, Adam, and actually Eve too, but Adam's bearing the brunt of responsibility here, so he's called out. Sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, these angelic creatures, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. They had access to God directly, daily, intimately. They sinned, they rebelled, and they lost everything. And the way we would most naturally read the story, that should be the end of the story. The story should go something like this. God made the world a beautiful place. He made Adam and Eve a beautiful people and gave them a beautiful responsibility. They were complete jerks and ruined everything and died the end. Read that one to your kids tonight as you're putting them to bed. (laughs) May not be very joyful, but it's actually pretty realistic. Because as God finishes the commands. All of the early commands, all of the first commands are commands related to purpose, right? I want you to fill the earth with my image and I want you to shape the earth with my shalom. Then he gives one ethical command, one way of saying I'm in or out, basically. He said, all of this garden, it's yours. Eat anything you want. Eat everything except one thing. And of course, when they ate that, it all ran amok. And they lost their place. But he said, in the day you eat of that, you will surely die. So we should expect, story's over, we should expect we don't even get to read it. In fact, when I have a bad day, that's actually a sign of God's grace because I shouldn't even be here to have any day, good or bad. And yet I'm here. 
So the bad day is actually something more going on, and Temple answers what more is going on. Adam and Eve are kicked out. They begin the death process in a way they did die immediately, right? Just like a flower cut off from the bush is dead but hasn't figured it out yet, right? They're cut off from life. It's going to take a little while to work its way out, but they're not immediately swept away. Something more is going on. That's where temple comes in, and that's what's so vital for us to understand as we embark on this series. I wanted to point you to one more verse. There's a whole lot more we could look at, but we don't have time. So if you have your Bible still, Exodus 25. Verse 8. God is talking to Moses. Who knows how many thousands of years or tens of thousands of years later. We don't have any idea of the early chronology, right? People that have said, well, the earth was created on April 4th, 4004 BC, aren't reading their Bibles actually very carefully. There are gaps in the genealogies that I could show you if you want to see them and you have time. It's like, it's not a list of everything. It's a, it's a pattern. So how, how long before Moses, Adam, and Eve lived? Don't know. It's been a long time. God's been working in that time. But when we get to Moses, God starts something really special. He creates a people for himself, a new nation. He rescues them out of slavery in Egypt. He takes them into a a private place where he can speak to them. He makes a covenant relationship with them. He gives them the Ten Commandments. And right after that, before he starts giving them a bunch of rules, there's just a few things he's told them. Before he starts loading them down with, here's all the rules and here's how to worship, he says this, verse 25 Chapter 25, verse 8, talking to Moses about the people, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. As exactly as I have shown you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. God should have said, we're done, but God is relentless in his love and his commitment, and he will not abandon humanity. He cannot directly connect like he did before, so he creates a sacred space where under certain very carefully prescribed position, uh, uh, conditions, God has literally rooted himself right in the middle of his people. They've been kicked out of the garden, kicked out of his presence, and yet he still finds a way to be right in the middle. In fact, if you read Numbers... Early in Numbers, it lays out, here's how this goes. The tabernacle that Moses is going to make is basically a portable temple, and it goes with them everywhere, and God's presence is in that temple. And every time they set up camp, it's in the middle. Everyone else is, or, is, is told, here's how you do around it, and you face the temple or the tabernacle because I'm in the middle. Later on, when Solomon makes it a permanent building, you can read about that in Second Chronicles, the first few chapters, it's, it's put on the high point. It's the place that dominates from everywhere in the city of Jerusalem. It is the thing you see. You can't help but see it. And it's grand. And in fact, when the morning light catches it, there's some gold on it that would probably dazzle your eyes if you were allowed in it, which only some people were allowed in it. You would be blown away because the whole inside is lined with gold and it's glorious and it's amazing and it's God at the high point where he's right in the main vision spot of everyone who lives there, right? He's in the middle of them wherever they go and he's at the high point in the main vision spot of everyone who lives there. I think that architecture's on purpose. Don't think it's accidental. 
And what God is saying is, yes, you're out of the garden. No, we shouldn't have a connection, but I've created a way, and that's my temple. I need a place where I can be right among my people. And then he says to Moses, I want you to do it very specifically and carefully. And both the tabernacle that Moses builds and later on the temple that Solomon builds and then the second temple that comes along later has imagery woven right into the, literally the fabric of the structure that is heavily focused on Eden. It's got trees, it's got fruit, it's got this whole kind of garden theme to it and also cherubim. Remember when God banished them out east of Eden, Steinbeck, you know, James Dean, they knew what they were talking about at least a little bit, right? There's the cherubim guarding access. When God plants his presence among his people, he says, I want you to weave right into the veil between the holy place and the holiest place, cherubim. In fact, I want you to carve, Solomon, these giant cherubs that are going to sit in the room with the Ark of the Covenant, which, by the way, has cherubs on top of it with their wings crossing over the top of it. Everywhere you look, it's either going to look like the garden or it's going to look like the cherubs, and you're going to be reminded every time you see this of everything that you lost and how you totally messed up and the consequences that came with that. But that's actually a message of grace because you're still here to look. You're still here to look. You should have been wiped out, and I'm still here. I didn't leave. In fact, they were cast out of the garden eastward. The entrance to the temple and the tabernacle were from the east, so the priests would always have to go eastward, west, like they're, literally like they're coming out of exile. And if you were going to go into the presence of God, literally, you would have to pass the cherubs. Now, that's a scary thought. We were kicked out of the garden to the east, and the cherubs are there guarding it, and that's kind of scary, but God's saying, yes, but don't miss the symbolism. I'm still here, and it's still possible to go back to the west, beyond the veil and the cherubs, into my presence, because I haven't abandoned you. The world is a mess, and you made that mess but I have planted my presence right in the middle of everything because I won't ultimately abandon you. When um, God tells Adam that he's going to cultivate and keep, that's the same language God uses when he's instructing the priests and the Levites how to care for the temple, the tabernacle it would remind them as they're cultivating and keeping, as they're guarding and caring for the temple or the tabernacle, oh, this is where we started. Oh, we really messed up. But God didn't leave us. He's still here. The other thing that's really important to understand about Tabernacle, why God is so specific. Moses built it exactly as I say. You can read this in Hebrews 8, a little later on, and 9. It's kind of woven through there, but it says he was shown a picture. He was shown a window, if you will, into heaven itself. It's like this is ultimate reality. It looks like this. And I want you to take something and kind of translate it into physical form for earth right now. So I want it to look exactly the way that captures 
ultimate reality. And we'll get into unpacking some of that as we move forward. But it's important to understand the temple in the middle of the people is God's emphatic statement that says, I will not leave you. Though you have utterly failed me, I am a God of grace. Those cherubs on the Ark of the Covenant had their wings spread out over what is called the mercy seat. And the priest would go in there. And there's a lot of things that had to be done because it's, it's not right. We're not in the same connection with God when we are in the temple era or the tabernacle era as we were in the Eden era or as we will be in the New Jerusalem era. But there's still a connection. There's still that opportunity for direct, intimate interaction with God in some meaningful way. And God made that. God takes the initiative. God's the one who approaches Abraham and says, hey, I want to do something with your family. God's the one who approaches Moses and says, hey, I want you to be my leader of my people. And here's the Ten Commandments. And God's the one who says, I want you to make a place so that I can live right among you. Really important. Moses got that. The passage Craig focused on last week, the chapter just prior, is rooted in this reality. In fact, that's why chapter 34 of Numbers happened is because chapter 33 Moses is saying, God, if you don't come with us, we ain't going, because that's the only thing we've got. The defining reality is your presence in our life, or we've got nothing. You got to be with us. So when God gives him the tabernacle, it's not like he wasn't planning that already. He's already aware. I've got to be with you. That's, that's the key. So the temple, as we look at it, and as we unpack different aspects of temple worship and the history of temple and tabernacle, the key thing to remember is it's this emphatic statement from God saying, in the midst of this brokenness which you created, I did not sweep you away. I'm right here. And I won't abandon you. I need you to line up with me. Now let me bring it to two simple application points for us this morning. Because you and I may be in that place of saying, where is God? Life is hard. I hate this. And, um, you know, some nice verses are helpful, but come on, what do I really do here? And let me give you two principles that'll be helpful. It's a battle. There's no simple answer. I told you there's snake oil kind of approaches that'll say, rub this verse on your life and you'll be fine. That ain't happening. That is not the world we live in. It is far more complex. So I have to fight to stay lined up, and some of you have been fighting a lifetime. Don't give up now. Don't give up now. But two things that I see in the stuff we've looked at this morning that might be helpful. The first one is the way that we tend to get off track is that we don't keep our eyes up. We don't keep our eyes up to where we see, not just see God, but see there's more to what's going on than how I'm feeling right now. And when that happens... It's easy to get pulled off track, and in fact, that's how we got pulled off track the first time. If you have your Bible open to Genesis 2 again, that'd be great. I want to show you just real quickly a dynamic in how the wheels come off the cart, and I like to suggest to you that that's a dynamic that plays out again and again in my life if I'm not careful. In Genesis 2, verse 16, God is speaking to Adam and he says, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Surely. That's kind of strong. It's emphatic. If I say to you, you come over to my house, you will surely have a second piece of dessert. <laughs> That's emphatic, right? You know I'm not trying to save it for myself because I want it out of the house, and it's good, so why don't you have some? 
Otherwise, I'd just say, sure, you can have another piece of dessert. God doesn't say that. You will surely eat of every tree. And then in a few words later, when he talks about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and don't eat that, he says, in the day you eat of that, you will surely die. Again, it's emphatic. You'll surely eat of every tree. You will surely die. God's being pretty emphatic. Now watch this subtle sleight of hand that Satan starts and then Adam and Eve buy. And it's the same subtle sleight of hand that happens in my heart that gets me off track. So in chapter three, the serpent shows up and he says, did God, verse, verse one, did God actually say? Right? You never say that when you think the answer is yes. You never say that when you're affirming something. You say, oh, do you believe that? I want to know something. Right? If I say, do you actually believe that? I don't want to know something. I'm mocking you. I'm undermining whatever it is you believe. I'm casting doubt. So when Satan comes along and said, did God actually say that? It's not an innocent question. He's undermining. And then look what he says. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now he's exaggerating. He's saying exactly the opposite in this exaggerated tone. So he's undermining and he's minimizing and then he's exaggerating. And Eve takes the bait. Look at how she responds. Verse 2, well, we may eat of the trees, right? It's kind of generic. If, if these other intensifiers weren't there, that would be innocent enough, but the intensifiers are there. God says, you shall surely eat of every tree. And Satan says, do you actually believe that? God doesn't want you to eat of any tree. It's all this exaggerated stuff. Now she's downplaying what God said. She's softening it. Well, you know, we can eat of the trees, but not of the one that you're talking about. In fact, we can't even touch it. Now she's exaggerating. See what's happened? There's this subtle shift, and here's what I think it cashes out to. Satan has succeeded in getting her to move from who is God and what is he saying to what do you think and how do you feel about who God is and what he's saying. He's no longer the important question. How I feel about it is. I don't like that, actually, come to think of it. And, and so she starts playing the same game, minimizing and exaggerating, and then Satan knows he's got her, because look what he does the next thing. Verse 4, he flat contradicts, he flat denies. He says, you will not surely die, which is exactly the opposite of what God had said. You will surely die, you will not surely die. I know you're in the wrong realm already. You're already questioning God. You're already trusting more in your own perspective and feeling about this thing. So I'm going to just tell you straight up, God's not cutting it straight with you. You can't trust him. And she follows right along, and so does Adam. Verse 6, she took of the fruit, she ate it, she gave some to her husband. It is a direct denial of what God told her. That's a pattern that I find in the lives of those around me and in myself. When I stop looking at who is God and what is he saying as the primary lens and start saying, well, how do I feel about that? I've subtly moved into I'm God and he's an advisor at best. And that gets me into all kinds of trouble. And when things are hard, that's especially easy to do. Because I do hurt and I don't like it and I don't understand it. 
And if we read the Psalms, honestly, we know it's, it's, it's appropriate to process those feelings. We don't stuff those things. But at the end of the day, I still have to come back. I still have to fight for who's God. If I'm feeling this way and it's contrary to what God's doing, who's wrong? I may feel this way really, really, really. Then I'm really, really, really feeling something that's still wrong. And it's not simple, snap your fingers and it's all better, but it is the place to plant the flag and say, God, by your grace, by the power of your spirit, I'm gonna battle towards this and you're gonna have to help me. Because everything within me says, I wanna bail on what you're doing right now. I don't like it. And God is saying, whoa, whoa, wait, 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 wait. You remember? You remember back at the beginning when you guys totally messed up? You're the one that messed up the world. I put a temple among you because I am at work. There is a bigger story. The beginning is going to be repeated even better in the end, and you're still part of that. Don't give up, and don't fall into the same trap where you're more concerned about how you feel about me and about what I'm saying than about who I actually am and what I'm actually saying. Don't do that. Eyes up. Eyes up. Second thing. Eyes up. Connect. Connect. All right? God plants himself right in the middle. Numbers 2, verse 2 says, hey, when everyone's camped, here's how it goes. I'm in the middle. That's on purpose. I've made it possible. It, it may be scary to say I got to walk past the cherubim to get back to the presence of God, but it's possible. If you follow the pattern I set up, it's actually possible you can be restored to some sort of significant, intimate interaction Guard that. Remember that I'm the God who loves you enough I wouldn't bail on you when you rebelled against me. There shouldn't be a Genesis 4, but there is. And no, your life shouldn't be hurting like this. You shouldn't have a life, but you do. And I love you enough that I'm gonna walk through this mess with you and bring you out the other side. Hang on to that. Lay hold of that. Early in 2018, a song came out that most of you will be familiar with. Here's some of the words. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. It chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, endless, reckless love of God. There's no shadow you won't light up mountain you won't climb up coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down, lie you won't tear down coming after me. That's not just words on a piece of paper. There's a temple that God built. There's a tabernacle God established. And there's something today, which we'll get to eventually, that shows that's true. I am recklessly committed to you. Don't overhear that. People get all worked up. Oh, God right? It's poetry. And it's absolutely on target if you understand what it's saying. I am overwhelmingly, recklessly committed to you, even if it doesn't feel like it. That song really became introduced to my family in the spring of 2018 as they're sitting in a waiting room in 
a hospital wondering if I'm coming out alive and what kind of shape I'm coming out in because my nephew came out from Arizona and that was big in their family and it just kind of really grabbed hold. I love that song because it says the world's a mess. I made it the mess. God didn't, but he didn't give up on me. There's a temple. There's a tabernacle. There's a presence of God that will not go away and there's an access to him that I can have and it's because he loves relentlessly, recklessly loves. And wherever you are right now, it could be the worst moment in your life. It literally could. God still relentlessly, recklessly loves you. And he says, don't give up. I want to pray for you. God, you know where each of us in this room is. You know our heart condition you know, the tears that we weep in private, the frustrations and the struggles. You know, the anger that we have even towards you because it's not the way it's supposed to be. We bring all that to you. And we ask that you would flood us afresh with a sense of your relentless, reckless love. There's a Genesis 4 and 5 and 6 and 7. There's a tabernacle, there's a temple, and you're working today. Because even though the world is still broken, you didn't walk away. To help us to live eyes up, seeing your grand plan, lean into your love. And Lord, we don't want to be simplistic. That can be brutally hard. By the grace of your spirit, would you give us what we need to hang on to that, even in the darkest times. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.